Welcome back to Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Here's part two of our episode on Hawaiian honeycreepers with Jacob Drucker. Real quick, before we get back into it, I wanted to let everyone know that we'll be posting some of Jacob's photos, as well as photos from the Field Museum of Hawaiian honeycreepers on our Instagram page, so make sure to check them out. Okay, go get your binoculars, and let's get started. I wanted to ask just like a basic question. Why are they called the honeycreeper? Well, there's a good question. Let's see. Well, it comes back to what Shannon was just saying about how when 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 Europeans encountered these birds, I didn't know exactly what they were. In fact, morphologically, they most closely resembled the honeycreepers in uh, the honeycreepers in South America. Okay. Yeah, I mean, when you look at what they do, a lot of them feed on nectar, and there's a whole swath of them that creep around, like the creepers that live in lots of other parts of the world. Okay. So. I don't know who the first person to call them that was. They look a lot like honey eaters, some of them. So, well, again, they're, they're such a fascinating group from a human perspective in the sense that the first Hawaiians, the Polynesians that got to Hawaii, used them in all kinds of ceremonies. They made coats out of feathers and things. And so when the first Europeans got there, I think they were learning from the Polynesians about what was around, and and a lot of these were birds that were high in the canopy and and moving around in the flowers and things. And so I'm guessing that 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 one of these uh, early explorers from Europe got there and just said, yeah, you know, let's call them honey honey creepers. Okay. <laughs> I have a question about the color. So the honey creepers have, there's so much variety in color that we've kind of discussed. And we've talked about how they've evolved, like their beaks and different things. But are there any ideas to like why the color has adapted so much? Like why there's so much variety in the different colors between the species? So what I would say is in a genomic world, people will start looking at that. But coming back to Shannon's comments about the clade that they come from, it's actually a clade of birds meaning clade, meaning set of relatives in, a, in the bigger phylogenetic sense for, for the, the, a, a family of, of birds. And the Hawaiian honeycreepers are a small offshoot of that. But they have a lot of the color traits that the relatives in other parts of the, the fringillid tree have. And so uh, yellows and reds. Um, yeah, it's, that's, it's a complicated thing. Certain groups of birds seem to have for whatever reasons, limited ranges of their variability, right? So there's whole groups where they vary in blacks and grays and browns, maybe a little bit of red and white and white spots and white wing bars and white stripes on your eyes and white bits of your tail. Um, and then there are others that vary in carotenoid pigments. Um, you know, and the honey creepers are part of that because that's a big part of what fringillids do. They use different um, pigments in different ways. And then there's others like hummingbirds or my favorite kingfishers that use virtually every way you could possibly make a color. They use it. Um, and sometimes like, you know, the lineage needs to be born with those those abilities from whatever they have the capacity to change in those ways. And so those are the ways that uh, honey creepers change. Their relatives do the same thing. Although their relatives have some of the only pinks in birds, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I'll also add that to me. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I'd agree that 
though they it sounds like they're pretty diverse in terms of color and pattern but the reality is they really aren't especially so especially compared to some other groups but I don't think it's a coincidence that the clade of honey creepers that you see the most reds are the nectarivores so that implements kind of their their own sensory biases in terms of the way uh, they the way they've kind of adapted to perceive color to find food and navigate that environment okay that might be co-opted from a sexual selection perspective so what would you say about predators in Hawaii that would feed on honey creepers? Because I think of sometimes when I think of those red colors, I think of something trying to look like the habitat that it's feeding in as opposed to you know having bright coloration necessarily for any other reason. Well, the, the you know, part of the, only a small component of the bigger tragedy is that we don't have a great idea. I mean, most of the predators in Hawaii historically are extinct now. I mean, one of my favorite examples, there is a type of harrier. So this raptor that we now, every other extant harrier is really an open country bird and wetlands or grasslands. But the one that made it to Hawaii kind of turned into an occipiter, kind of like a forest hawk. So forest harrier, I think, is a colloquial name I've heard thrown around. So that would have been a big predator. Uh, there are a couple of owl species that colonize the islands more recently, and that's m- what most of the predation pressure comes from these days. There's um, no doubt that crows ate them, too. I'm sure the crows would have. Crows are super smart yeah. and very innovative and ingenious in that if a crow's going to get there, it's going to figure out how to exploit what is actually fairly limited resources, right? So, And I would guess that a relative lack of predators is kind of what gave the ancestral honeycreepers a chance to mess around with different different phenotypes that might not have had a chance to diversify if there was strong strong predation pressure. You know, also with Galapagos finches, right? They're really constrained by the extreme environment and and the Galapagos. It's a little more lax the environment in uh, in Hawaii, so that's also at least think, it was. Uh, at least it was, yeah. It, and again, the size of the island makes a big difference too. So there are these two very small islands, Nahoa and Laysan, and they have finches on them that are related. They're honey creepers, they're, and and they're apparently some of the tamest birds researchers have ever come across. Like they'll literally, they're absolutely fearless of humans in part because they're on these tiny little atolls that, that don't have any predators. And so, you know. But brightness is in the eye of the beholder because something that looks bright to us, if you put it in the light in which it actually exists, it disappears. So there's a bunch of bright doves that and pigeons. And when you put them in the dappled light of a green forest, they they disappear, even though they're incredibly green and incredibly purple, have all this weird stuff going on. And the same could be true for a red bird. If it's in a bunch of red flowers, you know, we, we take it out, it's going to be very vividly red to us. But if you put it in, it it just goes in and you can't see it nearly as well. So you always have to think of the context before you think of what might be being signaled and what's cryptic and what's not. And we've talked about a little bit how some you know species have gone extinct, and I think there's been recently some that have been named extinct, right, of the honey creepers just within the past year or so. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's okay. And so it, uh, you've been involved in kind of in conservation efforts and things like that. So do you want to talk a little bit? Maybe we can kind of pivot to talking about what can be done, what efforts have been done, and what we can do to... Sure. Well, I'll back up a little bit to talk about the, you know, Yes. The problem, yeah. of which there are, of there, there are many. And so there's two major 
extinction waves that have happened prior to what we've seen in the last 100 years. And so obviously there was a big wave when Polynesians colonized the islands. And most of the avifauna that we know about um, from before Polynesians got there come from these, these incredible subfossils that are preserved in caves all around the islands, some of which are underwater. It's kind of amazing how much we've been able to learn from that about how much we don't, how much is not there now. Um, and then of course, when Europeans, and, and those again from when Polynesians got there, for, first you have a huge amount of land cleared, so you immediately have a habitat loss issue, especially in the lower elevations around sea level. Um, there's most of that forest was and native habitat was wiped out pretty quickly, and so we already have have lost most of our lowland birds at that point. Mm. Um, and then of course the big tasty flightless things like flightless ibis was were birds out there. There were a handful of rail species. Um, and even a lot of the honey creepers, the, the, uh, what you see in the subfossil record are a lot of these kind of terrestrial or subterrestrial honey creepers that lived in the forest understory. And those were some of the first ones to get knocked out um, mm. by Polynesians and then also when European by Europeans. And so Europeans, um, when they got there in the late 1700s, um, then then you get kind of these classic island problems of uh, of cats, rats, Goats, sheep's, pigs were all, pigs were were in it, were have become an increasingly big problem. Um, that's something the Polynesians introduced. But really, kind of like what's become the trademark example, trademark issue in Hawaii is mosquitoes and mosquito and uh, avian malaria from that they brought. Because we've talked about how the birds on the islands didn't have a ton of predators, but they really had no disease resistance. So when um, mosquitoes were brought by Europeans to the islands immediately you started seeing these huge die-offs mm -hmm. of lots and lots of species. Um, and so rats, cats, and mosquitoes um, have really been and continue to be the biggest problems um, in addition to, you know, undulates that eat vegetation. and um, Yeah, and then there's the climate change angle, of course, yeah. too, right? Do, do you want to talk about that, Jane? I mean, the climate change, this is humans beyond... Um, bringing cats and other things that should not have been on Hawaii and were never on Hawaii. When we were warming the earth, we're changing the distribution of these birds. And so it used to be that the mosquitoes um, didn't like high elevations. It was too cold for them. But as we warmed, as we changed the environment, took a lot of it away and warmed the earth, the mosquitoes can go up and up and up higher and there's nowhere for the birds to go anymore. So the birds could go up only to the top <laughs> and now you can't go any further and now they're all vulnerable to uh, mosquitoes for which they have no native immunity and it it takes a while to develop immunity and most of these birds do not have large population sizes anyways the area they're in is pretty small so it doesn't take long uh, and mosquitoes are really good at what they do and so are other waves of mosquitoes that come after and then humans try to control the mosquitoes with chemicals and other, and then biological things to try to put sterile males in. And at this point, there's no way to wipe out malaria. The only thing you can hope is that you, you know, same thing with COVID, that you can knock the levels down enough that the birds can survive mm -hmm. um, without all being infected all the time. It's and, really tricky. And all that change has also happened in a situation where in the lowlands humans have introduced all kinds of birds and so 
even if things got better for in terms of uh, uh, their ability to ward off malaria, they'd be competing with a whole avifauna now that that's been brought in in the last two hundred years. I mean, what do you you've been there? So what is it? Well, yeah. Hawaii is this like dystopian future of, <laughs> of of plant life, of bird life, of everything. I mean, it's um. I mean, once you get up to the places with habitat and where you, you do see get a sense of what it, what it used to be like, I mean, it's, it's awe-inspiring. But apart from that, it can be really depressing. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I mean, there have been I think there were some studies done not too long ago where they looked at how if, how good introduced birds are as fruit dispersers relative to the native uh-huh. fruit dispersers. So the native fruit dispersers would have been these myodestes thrushes um, relative to something like a leothrix, a little. Uh, an Asian bird that's been b- brought in through the cage bird industry and um, that, you know, they eat more fruit. They kind of compete directly with the native frugivores, but they also dis- are really good at dispersing all these non-native plants too. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely an uphill battle. I mean, it's multi-pronged. Yeah. Un- unfortunately. And you see that. Homo sapiens is at the root. Of and, all of the prongs, and you see that you know we say okay, well, what made this what made this species X go extinct? And you say okay, well, it's really a combination of all of these things. So the um, you know in the case of a bird like Ou, which was one of these really better dispersing finches, it was frugivorous. It would kind of fly around. It, it lived on most of the islands initially, um, but its population got down to pretty low levels because of malaria until there was just a handful of birds um, that survived on the top of the, bi- the big island. Again, so higher elevations where there's, there are no mosquitoes. Um, but then a hurricane came through, and that was mm-hmm. the nail in the coffin. And so uh-huh. that's the a hurricane were the final were, were the final problem that did that did in Ou. They did in the last Oo the that the last of that unique family entirely to the Hawaiian Islands, um, the the big thrush that was on Kauai. Um, but these birds were all adapted with those kinds of weather things. But it, what happens is we change the frequency and the severity of these kinds of storms, and we change the habitat to where there's nowhere for them to hide in these bad storms, and and they can't they can't survive. And we change the habitat enough even if you can successfully breed them in captivity, which is tricky enough as it is, there's nowhere to put them, mm. right? So are you going to keep them and have yes. like these zoo-like environments? It's, which it's, Is that better than, I guess that's better than nothing. But Hawaii you know. doesn't have the kinds of situations that you see, for instance, in New Zealand, where the mainland of New Zealand is very heavily affected by humans. But there are some uh, actually, quite a few islands offshore that actually have fairly pristine habitat and a lot less problems associated with humans like cats and rats and things. And so a lot of the terrestrial native uh, New Zealand birds are actually holding on only because humans have actually moved them out to some of these offlying islands. And that's really not very possible in, in Hawaii. Yeah, for a few reasons. I mean, first, I think the bottom line, I mean, Hawaii is always looking to the Kiwis for for answers. Um, 
And a lot of that has to do with the way the government works and the way the government's invested in conservation in New Zealand. I mean, there's a huge government buy-in to this is an urgent issue. We have to do it now. We have to give it the resources it needs. We're going to minimize the types of bureaucratic roadblocks um, that can prevent fast action. And all of those things are are the problem in Hawaii. Um, you know, the, for example, the solu- the most important solution to the mosquito problem right now is introducing these sterile male po- mosquito populations. And it's just been, you know, this, the, the method has been tried and tested um, on mosquitoes in the mainland U.S., malaria-bearing mosquitoes in the U.S., because it's a problem for people, right? Um, but get, but passing that type of legislature, getting soliciting public feedback, mm-hmm. the discourse that follows, um, that's been a major hurdle. And just in the last year, pilot projects have finally been given approval in Maui and on oh. Hawaii, the two mm-hmm. islands where birds are, well, are, are in the most trouble because there's some still some birds left. But um, you know, the other example, the other example of how we learn from New Zealand is just the scale of the scale of trapping rats and cats. I mean, really, I don't know what the public opinion about cat culling is in New Zealand. Um, but if there are any, the conservationists have been able to overcome it and get rid of cats and rats to the extent that's necessary, where there's just so much more pushback here in the U.S. around both. Cats are not native to Hawaii or virtually any other place in the world. House cats are not native anywhere. Mm. They are a product of humans and human domestication, and they don't belong outside. I know that's a political statement, but they don't, and they're devastating um, island populations. There's big projects to cull them in Australia and other places like that. What do rats do? Rats will eat nestlings. Rats will, yeah. So they're, rats they're, have diseases. Okay. Um, they're very effective at, at uh, competing, so their numbers are really high. And, and I think a lot of it is mostly nest predation. Yeah, I mean, nest predation and even adult predation is huge. I mean, adult predation for incubating nests. We've uh, on, on the nest monitoring we've for projects I've been involved with, we'll see on trail cameras that we've put up above nets, nests of rats climbing trees and taking mm. out adult, eating adult birds, oh. eating nestling oh. birds. So trees are a non-issue. Oh, wow. um, and then cats, you know, w- w- with rats, a couple of rats can be a big problem, but the higher densities are, are obviously a bigger problem. All it takes is one cat in a thousand hectares to wipe out a population. Oh, oh my gosh. Jeez. They're good. They're, they're they're amazing predators, and and that's what the, that's what they do. Except they don't kill rats in cities. <laughs> yeah, they're not so good. <laughs> they're m- much better at killing native birds in uh-huh. places where they wiped out entire species. Um, but cat, one of the, I had a cat. Cats are cute, but they belong inside. Otherwise, mm. they're evil. <laughs> I will see one one of the legislation one of the legislative wins that's kind of set the set the way forward in a lot of ways in with Hawaiian conservation is. It was a Hawaiian honey creeper that was the first uh, non-human animal to sue the government <laughs> and get money from that. Um, so Palila versus the state of Hawaii was a lawsuit that happened. Um, I th- forget the exact details. I think um, the state of Hawaii put up Palila, or, you know, or I forget who, who, who whose great idea it was, but uh, people sued on behalf of Palila, the bird, based on neglect from the government for putting up a fence around the last area where they exist on top of the, the biggest mountain on the big island. Oh, my oh. gosh. Um, and they won, and that money is still being used today 
to build a fence around this area. But again, that kind of is a testament to, you know, this happened in the 70s, I want to say. I could be wrong. So it's a long time ago, but that fence is still being built. And that tells you about how long it takes to implement both the geographic scale, the institutional scale, and the financial scale that it takes to make a lot of this happen. And the fact that 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 island is big enough that that fence is connected to a lot of habitat that is not going to be full of organisms that are particularly friendly to palilas over time. And so, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a major challenge with respect to, to trying to conserve these birds. And so what could be done to help? Like, is it raising awareness? Is it passing legislature? I mean, I know that's a loaded question, but I mean, what, you know, what actionable things could be done to actually try to like help this? Yeah, well, first and foremost, we need to ramp up the sterile mosquito program across all the islands, especially on Kauai and on Maui, where the species most immediately in danger are. The the, um, the Kiwi Q on Maui and um, the Akikiki on Kauai. We need more sterile male mosquitoes to deal with the malaria problem. That's first and foremost. We need to scale up predator control for rats, cats, mongoose on the island where they're mongoose. Um, we need fences around the areas where there's good native forest lets to keep undulates out and then undulate culling programs inside those areas to get them out of there as fast as possible. Um, and then habitat restoration is huge. I mean, the only place where ho- where honeycreeper and forest bird populations are increasing in the entire archipelago are in this National Wildlife Refuge called Hakalau National Wildlife Refuge, uh, which is on the Big Island. So the refuge is at like from like 5,000 to 7,000 feet. And um, mosquitoes have not gotten there yet, at least Mm -hmm. malaria to the best of our knowledge. Um, And historically the area used to be, used to be, I mean, cattle culture is huge on the big island. A lot of it was raised for pasture, um, but thanks to the efforts of a handful of really, really special people, there's been a big reforestation effort that's kind kind of planting on the upslope side of the forest things like ohia and koa, these really important trees for a lot of these birds. Um, and just because of that, we see forest bird populations increasing. A lot of the real, a lot of the more endangered birds uh, like Akiapolao and Akepa are kind of expanding into these new areas. So like, you know, there are enough birds there that they're looking for new places to go. And instead of dispersing into areas that are filled with disease, they can disperse into places where there's actually habitat. Oh, wow. So um, who do you think is, which organizations are doing a good job of that? If people wanted to support something, where where would where would you suggest they go? Man, well, I would definitely, you know, keeping it in Hawaii is great. I mean, the, the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife obviously deals with Hakalau specifically. Um, a lot of the big, a lot of the, so on the big, you know, it's kind of like an island by island basis on the big island. Um, Hakalau is a federal run property, but a lot of the bird work happens via the state institution. So that's the department of land and natural resources. There's people working within that system, um, who are the ones doing the on the ground work. There are a couple of, um, programs that are set up to kind of be the confluence of these state, federal, and also nonprofits like American Bird Conservancy. Um, And those are programs like Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project, Kauai Forest Bird Recovery Project. Um, And those have been big players for a long time. So it's important to honor paying your taxes. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And realize that 
it does more than line the pockets of politicians, right? It's actually being used to mm-hmm. try to preserve this group of birds. So, RJ, did, when, when, when you were in Hawaii, did you see any native uh did you I see any honey creepers? I did not. No, this was years ago when I was there. I was um, I was a lot younger. It was kind of before I really got into birding. Um, so no, I actually don't think I saw any, unfortunately. But I want to go back. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but, I have some other things I think we should be worried about or c- concerned with or do, and that is to try to have what's the decimation that's happened in Hawaii teach us about how to not have that happen in other places. And so, you know, that there are museum specimens. Of, um, of these birds, and I think we should try to understand what kind of genetic diversity there was um, in these populations. So we can understand kind of what are con- some of the contributing factors that we can get some data on to know how we might preserve other things into the future. How much genetic variation can you have and still survive? Um, these are all open questions for most of these most of these birds, but there are some, the the way, the only place these, these birds live now, the, especially the extinct ones, is in museums. And we haven't even placed all these birds in the tree of life. So we don't know what they were related to, so we don't know all of the connections um, that may help us understand the plight of some of these or even preserve them, so that they have a lot to contribute to science, and too. Even- yeah, and I mean, from the gen- from the genomic perspective too. I mean, right now, uh, for a lot of birds, the the biggest populations are in captivity, and so there's a lot you can learn about the population genetics as a whole from museum specimens and from wild birds to inform how you manage these captive populations. Um, even microbiomes, right? That's been a big popular field um, as we've been able to sequence the guts of and other parts of different birds, and so. Um, there's one study that came out recently about how one of these most critically endangered ones right now, the Akikiki, they're unsurprisingly, their gut microbiome is entirely different in captivity than in the wild. Yeah. Yeah, so. we actually, there's a lot we don't know about the a bird's microbiome. We don't even know what a core microbiome is for birds, which is really different mm. from mammals. Um, well, so and so, so, you know, that highlights the need to continue to study the natural history of these birds because, you know, what you don't know may be really critical with respect to helping them survive and expand their population sizes. Jacob, do you ever go back? Have you been back to Hawaii any time lately? Yeah, I've been back. I was back last year. Uh-huh. Um, my partner and I had a, had a you know, we got married and we were going to say, oh, well, what if we did a Hawaiian honeymoon? But instead of, you know, doing the beach vacation thing, um, we visited some friends and tried to visit one of the islands we didn't spend as much time on. And so we were able to go and I guess vo- it was a very classic volunteerism situation, but we were able to go and visit some friends on Maui and spend um, some time in this super remote site with some looking for some really special birds. Oh, wow. Did you see anything you were looking for? Oh, we did. Yeah, we yeah. were able to connect with we were uh, some after some very wet days. We were very we were able to connect with some Kiwi Q and um, yeah. Do you, do you still have anything on your list that, like, you haven't seen there that you want to go back and see? Or well, you... I d- you know, there's no doubt that I want to go back as, uh, to the extent possible. I mean, from the forest bird perspective, um, you know, I haven't made it out to some of the – or the land bird perspective. I haven't made it out to uh, Nihoa or, or Laysan or any of these fur- these islands that are further out there. But, I mean, it, every chance to go back is special because you never know what they're, what will be there when you get back. I mean – to kind of highlight how intense a lot of these declines were. 
this bird on Kauai. Like Kauai right now is kind of where everything is declining the fastest. And that's because it's the lowest of the major islands where there's still habitat and forest birds. And so mosquitoes have kind of ascended the mountain much faster. And so the main, the three, there's kind of two focal Hawaiian honey creepers on Kauai that have been, that have seen these really precipitous population drops. There's a bird called Akeke'e, um, which is a little yellow bird. It's got this beak that it uses almost like a, like a, like crossbill does mm. So on the mainland. So they'll kind of tw- use their beaks to kind of tweeze in opposite directions to open the buds of these trees and then extract what's inside. So again, and then the second bird is this bird called an Akikiki, which um, looks like a little, a little rice ball that hops up and down the tree with a pink <laughs> beak. And um, so both of these birds were were pretty common in the in the 80s 90s you could see them i think the the there were the global populations in the 80s where both these birds were in almost to about 10,000 i think and of course in the 80s in Kauai, people were really n- not thinking about them very much because they were so focused on the birds that were critically endangered then they were thinking about okay well how can we you know the, the um the big large Kauai thrush we have to we have to figure out if there are still any of those left. Is there Kauai Oo? Those those are down to a couple of individuals. In this in 1969, people saw uh, a Kauai Akialoa, which is you know, of all the beaks, extreme beaks. This is the one that's just you know the beaks twice the length of the body and decurved. It's oh, this wow. really dramatic beak, really cool bird. Um, nobody had seen one. I think between about the. 40s or 50s and then no one saw one again until about 1969 1970 and then after that no one saw it again and so in the 80s in Kauai, people really focused on there are these super rare things that were that are about to be extinct or thought to be extinct it's great that we have akikiki and akikai around but they're not our first priority fast forward to 2016 when i worked with the Kauai forest bird recovery project looking for nests of these birds and the populations of both was estimated about a thousand akikei and about three hundred akikiki. So right mm-hmm. there, you just you, you have a huge decline. And uh, other birds like the evie in twenty sixteen, the evie is a bird that's relatively common on all the major islands on on the Big Island, on Kauai, on um, on Maui, and even a little bit on Oahu. There's a couple of old populations left, but between twenty sixteen. And now, Eevee is almost extinct on the mm-hmm. island. Ak- Akake'e have also kind of continued to decline down to about, you know, a couple hundred individuals. Uh-huh. And last I heard, there are only six of uh, only six Akikiki left in the wild. Oh, my gosh. Um, so it's just happening so quickly. And you can see the connection with mosquitoes. I mean, yeah, I mean, predation from rats has is uh, uh, there are rats around and that predation is happening at kind of a constant rate as it ha- there hasn't been a ton of habitat change in the area where they live in the last decade but mosquitoes have just ac- accelerated the extent to which they're um they're living on the mountain with the birds and when they go their natural history goes too because i imagine a lot of their nesting biology has not really been well described and um, we don't know very much about eggs or yeah, and, just all kinds and of And we things. haven't spent a ton of much time at all to, or any time really talking about how important forest birds are to Hawaiian culture and the sense of um, the sense of I think Aina is the word just the sense of landscape sense of place that's super important um, in that part of the world and I mean the the island is unique 
the geology is unique, the plants unique. I mean, everything about the biology and geology and culture of Hawaii is so distinctive that um, those different facets are all tied in with one each other. So if you lose Hawaiian birds, you lose that mu- that much of the of, of Hawaiian culture too. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think we're kind of getting close on time here. Um, is, is there anything else we want to talk about before we end it? Anything else? Any other topics we want to? Nope, there's seabirds too. We could do a whole nother thing on yeah, Hawaiian yeah. seabirds. There's yeah. one last point I want to make. <laughs> yeah. And that's that, you know, you mentioned that the honey creeper, that a bunch of honey creepers were just declared extinct. We've known they're extinct for the last decade plus. Oh, wow. Okay. And only now it's formally being being officiated. Ivory-billed woodpecker. <laughs> <laughs> very not, much. not on Hawaii. Not on Hawaii. <laughs> and... Very much extinct. Oh, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> well, and by yes. keeping, by, um, but by keeping birds that are ex- that are extinct, not extinct. My understanding is that it detracts from the the pot of resources that are potentially available to to species that actually need it. And you know, ivory-billed woodpecker is kind of the extreme example. But the reality is that red-cockaded woodpecker, an endangered bird, perhaps not as in as much trouble as a lot of these Hawaiian forest birds. Um, has gotten more conservation funding than all Hawaiian land birds combined oh, wow. across its history because they ha- a lot of their territories happen to live, happen to be, a lot of their range happens to overlap with large military bases. And oh, so a lot geez. of DOD funding gets funneled into that, um, which is great. Great for red cockaded woodpecker. But it does show you that just because something's can listed as endangered or near threatened, there's not an equal distribution of resources hmm. um, for the species that really need it most. Wow. It's really interesting. Yes. Well, Jacob, this has been awesome. This has been so great having you here. Uh, Thank you so much. And please come back. We should definitely do another episode talking about some more Hawaiian birds. Or some Ecuadorian birds. Yeah. 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 We can definitely do that. Thanks for having me, you guys. It's been fun. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's part two on the Hawaiian honey creepers. We appreciate everyone listening and ask that everyone please help spread awareness about the different Hawaiian honeycreeper species. If you have a question for John, Shannon, Amanda, and I, feel free to send it to podcast.birdsofafeather at gmail.com or reach out to us on Instagram. We appreciate all the bird brains out there for reaching out. We continue to roll audio and have a little bit of small talk after the episode. We'll play that for anyone now that wants to listen. Okay, thanks everyone. Dams, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can talk about ivory-billed woodpecker, but the the absolute amazement that people have when you show them an ivory-billed woodpecker, mm. I was not prepared for what that does to people. It's such an emotional reaction. Mm. It's really interesting. And oh. obviously that's what's driven so much of the resources and time. And I think that that could be the case for other birds too if people got to see them up close like mm-hmm. if they were in the museum I mean Hawaiian honey creepers are unbelievable oh. when you look at them you can't imagine that things could be developed that way that look like that yeah and Nukupuhu Nukupuku Nukupuhu yeah I mean I mean the history of the collections and like the, the Hawaii arms race of collecting between like this that's another thing that would have been fun to yeah. talk about because on on like the two key figures on one hand you had like a a, a a government figure going out and collecting for for Cambridge University an academic not a government figure but you had on one hand you had an academic and on the other hand you had somebody going out collecting for Walter Rothschild so the comparison you know Self. the tagline oh. i wanted to say was like you know on what it's like comparing 
Walter Rothschild versus University of Cambridge was like NASA versus Elon Musk <laughs> trying to <laughs> study Hawaiian birds. <laughs> That's but, hilarious. Yeah. <laughs>